Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. You never really know what to expect when Isaac says, so I'm going to tell some lies this morning. That's what I was told before church. <laughs> but, but, you know, it could have been worse, I guess. Uh, what happens when the gospel comes to town? Now, we're in the middle of summer. My guess is some of you or a good portion of you will be making trips at some point or another, if you haven't already, to some sort of fairground. Uh, whether it's the county fair here in Rochester before too long, whether it's up to the cities for the state fair here before the end of the summer. And, and I don't know about the rest of you, but in my experience, not, not a whole lot of people spend a lot of time at fairgrounds when the fair isn't going on. Uh, I drive past Grand Park probably two or three times a week on average, and there, there's never a whole lot going on, it seems like. There's not, there's not much of a party going on most of the time, at least that I've been able to to notice, but, but the thing about fairgrounds is that when the fair does come to town, everything around it changes. Everything looks different, at, at least for a period of time, because of what's going on there. So what happens when the gospel comes to town? Today is the last week of this series we've been in over the last few weeks, looking at the book of Acts that we've called Actors, uh, looking at different uh, people and places that are transformed by the presence of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. And last week, we were in chapter 15, we looked at this event called the Jerusalem Council, where a group of leaders in the early church gathered together to, to wrestle with this issue of, of the way they needed to view those who did not belong to the spiritually in crowd, so to speak, and how that had, their perspective on that group changed because of the coming of Jesus. And so today, uh, to, to tie a bow on this series, so to speak, we're going to be doing something a little similar by not looking at just one person, but looking at what happens when the gospel comes to town, the town in this case being the city of Philippi in Acts chapter 16. Uh, Luke tells us that Paul and his associates, Luke being one of those associates, um, spend quite a bit of time in Philippi. But when Luke's telling us the story of all that goes on during their time in Philippi, he drills down to focus on uh, three different stories that Ike kind of paraphrased for us here just a little bit ago to show what happens when the gospel comes to town because the message of Jesus is not a message for individuals that changes what they do in their private moments alone. Uh, the message of Jesus is not something that changes how early we get up on a Sunday morning, but really nothing else. When the gospel comes to town, it changes everything about our existence, and it changes everything about the world around us. And in this chapter, Luke shows us how all that plays out by looking at those three stories. He gives us a, a glimpse into how the city of Philippi is transformed through the gospel by how it transforms these three uh, different types of people. And so we'll break this text down into three chunks. We'll start by looking at Acts 16, verses 11 to 15. If you want to follow along on the screen or in your Bibles, uh, Luke writes, From Troas we set out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. And the next day we went to Neapolis. From there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony in the, the leading city of that district of Macedonia. 
and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. And one of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Uh, Paul and Silas are in uncharted waters as they come to the city of Philippi in terms of the the mission of the church, because the the gospel's never been to this region of the world before, and it seems like there's really not even much of a foundation to build on. The rule in the ancient world was that a city needed 10 Jewish males before you could build a synagogue in your town. And so the fact that Paul and Silas have to go outside the city on the Sabbath to find a place to worship means that there's no synagogue in the city of Philippi, And therefore, that means that the the population of Jewish people within the city of Philippi must be pretty small. And when you don't have a synagogue, when you don't have a a building to go to for worship, you would typically gather near water of some kind. Uh, In the Jewish uh, faith, you have washings you need to do to make sure you're ceremonially clean in your worship, so it makes sense to do your worship near water so that you can do all those washings and things like that. And so Paul and Silas go out to water. They find people there worshiping. And they sit down with them, and like we see throughout the book of Acts, Paul begins with what we know of as the Old Testament and unpacks its message to be able to show how the hope of the Old Testament has been fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. And one of the members of this crowd is this woman, Lydia. And we're not told a whole lot about Lydia, but what we do know, what Luke does tell us, allows us to be able to piece some things together about about who she is. Uh, First, Luke tells us that she's from the city of Thyatira. And that city was famous for their purple dyes, and purple being a pretty valuable thing in the ancient world, given that it's the color of royalty. And so she has brought this trade from her homeland, she's, that, that her homeland was famous for, excuse me, and comes to Philippi in the province of Macedonia, one of the more wealthy regions of the Roman Empire. The city of Philippi was established first because they found gold nearby. So all of that is to say that she's a well-off businesswoman, given the trade that she's in and, and what we're told about her. Luke tells us that she's a worshiper of God, uh, which means that she's not ethnically Jewish, she's not fully a part of the Jewish faith, but like the Ethiopian eunuch and Cornelius that we've looked at in this series, she's interested in the God of Israel, but she's been encountering, she encounters barriers along the way as far as drawing near to this God that she's interested in. And as she hears the message of Jesus... Luke tells us that the Lord opened her heart to hear the message of the gospel and to respond in faith. And we need to be careful with a couple different places in this story, but this is one of them where we need to make sure we're not going beyond what Luke has written. Luke is saying that it is God making the first move towards Lydia in the presentation of the message of Jesus. Lydia does not become a follower of Jesus because Paul was just an incredible public speaker and he was able to persuade her because because he knew all the tricks of the trade. Lydia does not become a follower of Jesus because she was really smart. She was way smarter than everyone else sitting there listening to Paul that day. She connected all the dots and so she was able to figure it out. She became a follower of Jesus because God made the first move by sending Jesus to humanity. 
to reveal his plan of salvation through his death and resurrection. But in saying that, Luke is not saying that Lydia was a robot with no choice in the matter. Luke is saying God opened the door. He's not saying he shoved her through the door. And that might sound to you like I'm splitting theological hairs, and maybe I am, but I think it's worth highlighting because when we take all of Scripture into account, what we consistently see is that God makes the first move towards us as humanity, and he calls us to respond in faith. And that's what's happening here. And when that does happen, the next thing Luke tells us is that she and the members of her household are baptized. And again, we need to be careful about putting words in Luke's mouth. In the ancient world, the normal practice was that the head of the household, Lydia in this situation, set set the tone and had final say over everything that went on in the household, including what religions were and were not practiced. So, If the head of the household becomes a follower of Jesus, the expectation would have been that everyone else in the household would do the same. Now, typically when we think of households in our world today, it's it's parents and kids, and that's pretty much it. Uh, But in the ancient world, it would have been much broader than that, probably because of how wealthy Lydia is. What we're talking about here is not necessarily a nuclear family per se, but but servants and maybe extended family and, and things of that sort. We're not told anything about Lydia having a spouse or children, and so it would be going beyond what Luke says here to suggest Lydia has children or maybe even infants that are, that are baptized without knowing what's going on or something like that. And it, it's worth noting, Luke's not fleshing out an entire theology of baptism right here for us, but he is showing us the response of Lydia to the message of Jesus. When she hears about Jesus, she and those that she is responsible for become followers of Jesus, and that response continues in the hospitality that she offers to Paul and, and his associates. The preacher John Stott says in his commentary on this passage, once the heart is opened, the home is open too. And now I know that there's some of you listening to me this morning who could not be paid enough money to be convinced to get up on this stage on a Sunday morning. Uh, You'd say, you know, I'm not able to, I'm not good at public speaking, I get nervous, I would get tripped up, or whatever it might be. And that might be true, but that does not mean you have nothing to offer. You might not have a great stage presence or public speaking voice, but my guess is you have a table. You might not be able to give a systematic theology lecture, but you can share a meal or a cup of coffee with someone. You might not know the original biblical languages, but you can sit down with someone and share how Jesus has transformed your life. And in my experience, that can and does make as big of a difference as anything that might happen up on this stage on a Sunday morning. And I know that because that's what I've experienced in my own life, and my guess is some or all of you have experienced that as well. I've experienced that even from some of you. Responding to the message of Jesus involves opening up our hearts to God, and it involves opening up our lives to one another. And one of the most tangible ways we can express that is through sitting down at tables with one another. And maybe that happens here in this building. Maybe that happens in a restaurant or a coffee shop. Maybe that happens in your own home. I don't know. But Luke makes it a point here to show us that one of the first things Lydia does after becoming a follower of Jesus is to welcome Paul and those traveling with him into her home, and she does not take no for an answer. So when the gospel comes to town, searchers are transformed. Lydia had heard of this God of Israel. She was intrigued, but she was unable to come near. 
She was an accomplished businesswoman. She was well off. She was materially wealthy. She was self-sufficient. But the message of Jesus brought something she had been searching for but never experienced fully. The message of Jesus provided salvation that would never come through business success or material wealth. And the message of Jesus provides hope and peace for the future, which we see in this next story Luke tells us from Philippi. It, it brings all of that, and it also brings healing in the present. So let's read verses 16 to 24. It says, Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. As she followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. So sometime after Lydia becomes a follower of Jesus, we're not given an exact chronological timeline, Paul and his associates encounter this girl who has a spirit. And in the original Greek, it says that literally she had a python spirit, meaning she had a spirit that the people around her would have believed came from the Greek god Apollo, who was believed to indwell females and give them power to be able to tell the future. However, if we've read stories about Jesus, specifically stories about Jesus casting out demons, we would read this story and know something else is going on. Now, this girl begins to follow Paul and his associates around, shouting, they're servants of the Most High God. They're telling you the way to be saved, which isn't wrong. It's just not exactly great PR. And it's worth noting, demons tend to have pretty good theology. In the Gospel of Mark, one of the first things Jesus does is cast a demon out of a man, and, and that demon shouts out, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The first person in the Gospel of Mark to make an accurate confession to Jesus about who he is, is a demon. And before Jesus casts that demon out, he commands it to be quiet, because the right words out of the wrong mouth are not helpful. And the same thing happens here in Acts 16. Paul tolerates this for some time, we're not told how long, but because of the power of Jesus... He's able to cast this, spirit, this evil spirit out of this girl, and, and Jesus' power casts it out. Immediately it leaves her. Immediately she is set free. But this creates a problem. Not for the girl who's been set free, but for her owners. And this girl is set free from the spirit that has kept her in bondage, and yet her owners kind of liked her being oppressed and suffering in this way because... It made them money. And now that this evil spirit is gone, so is their cash flow. 
So they grab Paul and Silas. They drag them into the town square. They turn them into the authorities. But notice, notice the story they, these owners tell the authorities because it's not the real reason for their anger. Luke told us that they're angry because they're not able to make money anymore, but they say Paul and Silas are causing an uproar because they are advocating customs unlawful for Romans to practice. And whether these owners realize it or not, what they say to the authorities here gets at the root of the reality of the gospel, gets at the root of what we're getting at in this sermon as the gospel comes into Philippi. The gospel flips the world upside down. The gospel introduces a way of life contrary to the ways of the world. And for those who don't believe in Jesus, that reality is a threat. For Philippi in the first century, the gospel called for a rejection of the belief in a pantheon of gods and an acknowledgement that instead there's only one God, and that one God has revealed himself in his son, Jesus. And that one son, Jesus, is the one who was ruling over the entire universe presently, not the emperor of Rome. And for that reason, the teachings of Jesus are to be embraced. The teachings of Jesus that say to, to give up your authority for the sake of others, that is to be taken up instead of the Roman belief that might always makes right. And in our world today, the gospel calls us to reject any teaching that says there's no objective truth, you can do whatever you want, as long as it makes you happy, it doesn't really matter, to instead say that there, there is a standard. And it comes from our God who is a loving creator. And his standards for how we are to live are where we look for direction and guidance in our life. And for that reason, we look to Jesus. Not our bank accounts, not the size of our house, not our own success, not our kids' success, not our social media feed. That, we look to Jesus for our meaning. The gospel flips our world upside down just as much as it did the city of Philippi. A few years ago, uh, my friend, this is a real story, not like the stories I told earlier, even though it's not about me, but anyway, I just needed to qualify. A few years ago, my friend uh, Mark was on a medical mission trip with a group from the church where he serves. And on one day while they were on this trip, he had, my friend Mark had worked alongside a friend of his who was a surgeon. And, and over the course of the day, they had been able to do 11 different surgeries for people to be able to bring them healing. And at the end of that day, uh, they, they were sitting on the deck of the place where, where they were where they were staying, and they were talking about the day and everything, my friend Mark says to his friend, the surgeon, he says, this is why you became a doctor, isn't it? And with tears in his eyes, uh, this, this surgeon says, you know, I, I became a doctor because I wanted to help people get better. And so often, so much of being a doctor involves dealing with insurance and lawyers and things like that, and it just gets in the way of being able to heal people. We all have all sorts of things that pull us in all sorts of directions each and every day. I have a lot of conversations, especially this time of year, that goes something like one person saying, how are you? And the other person saying, oh, we're busy. And I'm not saying that anyone with a full calendar is evil because I am just as guilty of this as anyone. But sometimes being busy gets in the way of being who God has called us to be. Even good things done by good Christian people can get in the way of us growing into who God has called us to be if it is not done with the right focus. 
It's easy for us to get caught up in the day-to-day of life and lose sight of the calling of Jesus to live out the implications of the gospel. Sometimes it's easy to lose sight of the fact that the gospel still flips our world upside down. And sometimes it's good to pause and just reflect and think about what about our lives, what about our homes, what about our workplaces, what about our city, what about our state, what about our nation would look different if the full implications of the gospel were applied? What would it be like to be a part of a home? What would it be like to be a part of a church that was entirely flipped upside down because of the gospel? And again, I'm not saying any of that to suggest that none of you know Jesus at all or anything like that. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I am saying is that I know how easy it can be to lose focus. And when we come to terms with the gospel, it always, it always interrupts our values. It does things like, like freeing servant girls from spiritual oppression, and sometimes it's just good for us to pause and take a spiritual inventory of our day-to-day and think through where and where not, where the implications of the gospel are being lived out and where they might not be. Because when the gospel comes to town, victims are transformed. In a world where things exist, such as people using the spiritual possession of this servant girl to line their own pockets, the gospel brings freedom. And if you have wounds that cut so deep that you think they will never be healed, if you have things that have happened to you or that you have done to other people that you think cast a shadow over your entire existence and you'll never be able to get out from under it, the gospel's for you. The message of Jesus brings hope and redemption, so draw near to Jesus and experience that for yourself. We had to sort of pause the story midway. We left it off with Paul and Silas being arrested and thrown in prison, and we'll pick the story back up at verse 25 with them sitting in jail to see where the transformation comes for one more, where transformation comes for one more group of people. So let's Let's read. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew a sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. It might be an understatement to say Paul and Silas have had quite the day. And yet, they're worshiping. They've been beaten. They're sore. They're wounded. They've been thrown in jail, put in a position, locked in stocks where where it would have been impossible to get any kind of rest, and yet they're singing and praying. And in the night, there's an earthquake, 
Surely a miraculous one because it's violent enough that the doors of the prison open and the chains of all the prisoners fall off, and yet the building itself is not totally destroyed. And when the jailer, likely a retired Roman soldier who was given this job as a reward for surviving a career in the Roman military, wakes up and realizes what has happened, he begins to take his own life because that's the more honorable thing to do in the Roman Empire. It's easier to take your own life than for your superiors to find out that you've been asleep on the job and take your life for you. But before that can happen, Paul stops him because no prisoner has escaped. And immediately, this jailer wants what Paul and Silas have. Luke doesn't tell us how much this jailer knew as far as backstory of Paul and Silas, if he had heard the charges against them, how long he had sat in the jail and listened to them sing and pray and all those things before he dozes off. But he recognizes that if this God that they are worshiping caused them to literally save his life by not escaping from prison when they had the chance, and he wanted to worship this God. Uh, Tim Keller is a preacher in New York City. He planted a church there, and he tells a story of a lady who had begun coming to the church he planted. And so they were, she had come a few times, and they were talking after church, and he asked, well, how'd you, how'd you find out about us? How'd you start coming here and things like that? And this lady worked for one of the television networks in New York. And not too long after she had landed a big promotion at her job, she made a mistake. And she said, it was a big mistake. It was so bad, I was surely going to be fired. But her boss, her immediate superior, went to his boss, his immediate superior, and went to them and said, actually, this is my fault. I didn't do a good enough job training her when she got this promotion. And so really, just I'll I'll take the blame. Don't don't fire her. Now, her, her boss lost some credibility with his superiors, as you might imagine, but he had been in his job long enough that he wasn't going to lose his job over it, and so instead of her losing her job, uh, they, they were both able to, to stay on. And this lady was absolutely astounded that he would do that for her. She started asking him questions of, why, why would you do that? Why would you take the hit for me? What is going on here? And for a while, he brushed it off. He said, it was no big deal. I, just, I didn't want you to lose your job. You haven't been here very long. I think you've got a bright future, so we just didn't want to lose you. Don't worry about it. And she kept, she kept bugging him about it. She said, I've never had a boss do this for me before. Any boss I've ever had is eager to take credit for anything that I do and eager to push blame on me for anything that goes wrong. Why? Why would anyone want to do that for me. She kept pestering him, and finally he said to her, look, I, it's because I'm a Christian, and I believe that Jesus took the blame for me by dying on the cross for my sins, and because he did that, I try to apply that in my own life. I try to bear more pain than I inflict in my work. And this lady hears that and immediately says, tell me where you go to church. And the spiritual trajectory of this jailer and his entire family is altered on this night. This one act by Paul and Silas transforms this jailer from treating them like the most hardened criminals to taking them into his home, attending to their wounds, feeding them, and experiencing the joy of the gospel. This hardened, lifetime military man encountered something he never had before. And the only rational response was to bow down at the feet of Jesus. And when the gospel comes to town, families are transformed. 
the gospel shifts our focus. It realigns our priorities. Even if you are the only person living under your roof who believes in Jesus, your belief in Jesus should change something about your home. And a home that's following Jesus together provides a safe harbor, a firm foundation out of which everyone in that household can go out into the world with the message of Jesus and offer the hope and transformation that that Jesus has available for everyone. One of our desires here as a church is that we would equip people of all ages to follow Jesus together. We don't want to send the young people to one part of the young kids to one part of the building, the older kids to one part of a building, the young, pe- the young adults to one part of the building, and the not-so-young adults to another part of the building, and just give everyone enough spiritual nourishment to get them through seven more days, and then, and then we'll try again in a week. We want everyone here following Jesus together, growing to be more like Jesus wherever you might be because of our belief that the gospel is for everyone and the gospel is for every household. And when we encounter that transformation, it has the potential to change everything about our lives, the trajectory of our lives, and the, and the spiritual trajectory of those around us and those who come after us for generations. There's one more scene in this chapter. We're not going to unpack this this morning because I've been talking enough already. But, but in this last scene, Paul and Silas are released They go to the home of Lydia where they meet with this fledgling group of believers. They encourage them, and then they leave, leaving behind this diverse group of people who've all been transformed by Jesus. To quote the preacher John Stott again, he says, It would be hard to imagine a more disparate group than the businesswoman, the slave girl, and the jailer. Racially, socially, and psychologically, worlds apart. Yet all three were changed by the same gospel and were welcomed in to the same church. The people we're told about in this chapter come from everywhere on the map. Lydia was a successful businesswoman from a foreign territory. If she was living today, you could maybe picture a, a, a woman who moved to Rochester from New York City to run a boutique downtown. The servant girl was at the absolute bottom of the social ladder. She had no rights, no property. She didn't even have autonomy over her own body. Any money she earned by fortune-telling went straight into her master's pockets. If she was around today, you could maybe picture a prostitute living on the streets downtown. The jailer was a retired Roman soldier, a subordinate within the government bureaucracy, a respectable member of the middle class living out a comfortable retirement. You could maybe picture someone who had served in the military for 20 years and now they've, they've got a job at the, at the, as a prison guard. But all three, and, their, and those around them, all from vastly different backgrounds, come together united by, by Christ alone. They each had different needs when they encountered the message of Jesus. Lydia is met with an intellectual need of hearing about Jesus from the Scriptures. This, this slave girl has a need for healing from the trauma, the oppression that she's experienced. This jailer has a need for redemption, having been broken by the hard life that he has lived with, by the grace that's been extended to him by Paul and Silas. And the gospel transforms all of them because the gospel transforms all of society. 
All of the same types of people in this, that are mentioned in this passage still need the message of Jesus today, and all of the same types of people are still able to come together in worship of the God who has saved them in Jesus. This is the transformation we believe is possible because of the gospel that we believe in, because of the presence of the Holy Spirit that we believe is with us. And so if you have never experienced that transformation for yourself, don't hesitate any longer. Let's have a conversation today. If you have experienced this, and this is old hat to you, focus on the truth of the gospel. Internalize those truths deep down. And let that be the foundation from which you go out into the world. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for the transformation of the gospel. We thank you that Jesus came for all people. He came for sinners like us. That no matter where we are, no matter what we've gone through, no matter what we've experienced, Jesus meets us where we are so that we can have hope and healing and transformation and life in him. So, Father, for those of us who have never heard this message before, never responded to it, help us to, to think well on who Jesus is and how he's revealed himself. For those of us who are following you already, help us to, to internalize these truths deep down so that we might be made new, so that we might go out into the world living as your people. We're grateful that you go with us for the hope that we have in Jesus. And it's in his name that I pray. Amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French.